0: Well, there's a a famous quote by an author, late 19th century, early 20th century, English author, Christian, Roman Catholic, named G.K. Chesterton. And he wrote in a famous book called What's Wrong with the World? He said this quote that circulates a lot. It says this, the Christian ideal has not been tried and found wanting, it has been found difficult and left untried. And his point to the world's inhabitants in his book, What's Wrong With The World, is don't dismiss the church's teaching as unhelpful in the healing of the world just because the church hasn't always done the best job applying it rather it's not the teaching that's the problem, it's rather the church's practice that can be the problem. And so again, the quote is, the Christian ideal has not been tried and found wanting, it has been found difficult and left untried. And when I, when I read that quote, um, you know, it sticks in my mind, I see the truth of it, but of all passages of Scripture where it comes to my mind, this is probably the one that most recalls Chesterton's quote to my mind. So let's keep that in mind as we read this really stirring uh, passage in Luke 6, verse 27 through 36. Incredible passage where Jesus preaches and says the following, but I say to you who hear, Love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. To one who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also. And from the one who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. And if you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners to get back the same amount. But love your enemies, and do good, and lend. Expect nothing in return, and your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the Most High. For he is kind to the ungrateful and the evil." Be merciful, even as your Father is merciful. And the grass withers and the flowers fade. And this really good word it endures forever, even to today. Let's pray this little prayer of illumination together. Let's pray. Make us to know your ways, O Lord. Teach us your paths. Lead us in your truth and teach us. For you are the God of our salvation, for you we wait all the day long, through Jesus Christ our Lord, amen. So how are we doing with this passage of scripture, this sermon of Jesus? As if you kind of did a little self-examination, how would you think you're doing even in your homes, you know, with your spouses or with your children or with your parents? I mean, your safe places, your safe spaces. You know, we often act as enemies to one another in our safe places. That's what sinners do. We don't want to admit it, but that's what sinners do. But Jesus' words especially relate to those who aim to hurt us and take advantage of us. And even more specifically, those who hate us and persecute us because we want to follow Jesus, that's the, that's the center of the context, is an environment that's hostile. This is this is a, a love ethic for a hostile culture. You know, so in that kind of culture, do we double down this way or do we respond in kind? And we've all experienced some degree of persecution, you know, some degree of discomfort for seeking to follow Jesus. Not perfectly, obviously, but trying to follow Jesus. We've all experienced some light form of, you know, discomfort, exclusion. Maybe you didn't get invited to something you wanted to get invited to because it wouldn't be quite as fun or... or, or A friend, you know, kind of distanced herself from you because another crowd was doing things she wanted to do and you weren't. Maybe a college professor just made you feel narrow-minded. Maybe you got kind of ridiculed on social media. Whatever it is, we've all experienced some light form of persecution. And yet, sociologists are seeing uh, that that's actually intensifying in our country. In fact, the culture's attitude in, in great sections of our country has moved into a more negative attitude towards the evangelical church. Jesus' words, therefore, are even more poignant to us. You know, there's one article in First Things that came out recently that said, you know, from the birth of our nation to 1994, you could say the culture generally viewed the church as a positive thing, it helped people. And from 1994 to 2014, it was just kind of neutral, he says, neither positive nor negative. But at 2014, kind of institutionalized around the Obergefell decision, which redefined, you know, marriage as a cultural convention and not a biblical institution with a content of a man and a woman joining in marriage. You know, at that point, around that point, there was a shift more of a negative view of the church so we're looking at this passage and we're going okay so we're seeing that our culture may be becoming more negative towards the church sometimes we're to blame for that but in another sense it's also inevitable because we hold to certain things because God said those things so we look at Jesus's sermon and we say okay this is becoming even more poignant for us more personal for us how are we going to take it in And so remember where we are. Jesus has gathered his 12 apostles from his wider group of disciples. He's met them on a mountain. He's looking like David when he's in the stronghold gathering God's people around him to start his kingdom. And the idea is that Jesus is initiating this totally different kind of kingdom. It's a revolutionary kingdom. It's an upside down kingdom. And that's what the Beatitudes are about. Like You bless the poor, you're declaring woes on the self-satisfied rich. Values of the world are turning upside down in Jesus's way of doing things. And he's exemplifying as he gathers his church and begins this upside down kingdom, what he said in his inaugural sermon, when he said, look, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives, recovery of sight to the blind, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Gets through preaching, looks at the crowd, shortest sermon ever, but probably the most powerful. Today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. The one Isaiah 8 to see is among you. And I'm about this to heal this broken world. And so, this king, come for this purpose, gathers a people of his kingdom to do this mission, and he declares it in the Sermon on the Mount. So, he speaks about what kingdom members are like in the Beatitudes. It's kind of a profile of what a kingdom member looks like, not qualifications to get in. They're already in by faith in Jesus. Salvation is a gift, but now... Under Jesus' authority and power, renewed by His Spirit, living in faith in Him, what do you look like? And that's what the Beatitudes show us, the picture of a family member. And now we move on. He's going to say, okay, what is a family member? How do you live in a world that's oftentimes hostile? And that's what verse 27 and 36 and actually to the end of the sermon is all about. He says, in my upside-down kingdom, in this sad and sinful world, you seek to change it in this upside-down kingdom approach, by this kind of love in this world. It's like that wonderful hymn that says, Lead on, O King Eternal, till sin's fierce war shall cease, and holiness shall whisper the sweet amen of peace. For not with swords loud clashing, nor roll of stirring drums... But deeds of love and mercy, the heavenly kingdom comes. That's Jesus' focus in this sermon. So three points. Luke's uh, love's action, verse 27 to 31. Love's antithesis. Nice big word. Love's antithesis in like 32 through 35. And then closing down with love's assurance. So love's action, verse 27 to 31. All right. So uh, D- Jesus' description of love here gets, gets your attention. It gets your attention because it's so active. Um, one commentator I like a whole lot says it's even aggressive, like it's an aggressive love. Jesus' kingdom isn't just about feelings or sentiments or sympathies. You know, Alan sometimes will say to me helpfully... Uh, when I've failed to follow through with something, I know that you know, none of y'all ever do that, but sometimes on occasion I'll fail to follow through on something. And she'll look at me and just go, very helpfully, and I always take it this way uh, she'll say, um, intention plus action equals impact. Like you may have intended it, but there was no action and therefore no impact. And it's not enough to mean well, it's not enough to have good thoughts. Love can be passive, and we can be cordially insulated. And so Jesus says, uh, love is active. And so he looks at this crowd, and he says, but I say to you who hear, and he especially, he's instructing his apostles, but he's also inviting this wider crowd that's kind of unsure. They're interested, but unsure. And he's inviting them to become his disciples. And the idea of hearing is not just let it enter your ears so you listen, but it's, you know, the Bible speaks of hearing as put it into practice, respond to it, obey it. And so that's what Jesus is wanting out of them. So how does a member of Jesus's upside down kingdom love in this hostile world in order to bring the power of Jesus's upside down kingdom to bear upon the hearts and minds of men and women and boys and girls? So verses 27 and 28, Jesus gives four shocking commands. Rapid fire. Shocking commands. And the first one is, love your enemies. And this would have stunned everybody, startled everybody, uh, angered some. Now in our conviction of the gospel section, you saw I drew various passages together. You're showing the Old Testament precedent for this. Um, For that matter, even pagans had their own precedent for this. Yet in Israel in Jesus's day, and largely and very understandably, if we were in their shoes, they've been overrun for generations. Brutal treatment. So because of that, with these foreign oppressors, the rabbis fixated on a certain phrase in Leviticus 19.18 when it says, you know, that's the passage that says, love your neighbor as yourself. But the verse goes on to say, define that neighbor as the sons of your own people. And so they define neighbor as the sons of your own people, meaning limiting it to brothers, not enemies. Not enemies. Uh, But even further, the Pharisees, they narrowed it even more. They had a lot of influence. Uh, They got frustrated with those that they viewed as bringing the nation down by their lifestyle, that they further narrowed Leviticus 19.18 to be good Israelites. Like according to their measure, these are the good ones and those are the bad ones. So you didn't have to love the bad Israelites. So Jesus recovers the true Old Testament teaching and presses it even more absolutely, clearly, and emphatically. Just No qualification, love your enemies. So a follower of Jesus loves his or her enemies. And this informs, influences the way we approach, the way we approach anybody. And so we ask, is the the evangelical church in our country doing a good job with this? Uh, Before our culture within ourselves would we be said, yet? Yeah, they, they disagree, but they're loving their enemies? How about us personally in our little spheres of influence? How are we loving our enemies? So second, do good to those who hate you. And, and I mean, man. So you went from a, a generalized statement to now getting real concrete with actions. So that a person, you imagine a person who's actively trying to harm you, either just because... He wants to one-up you. You know, that's what life is about. Just get ahead, and I'm going to step on you to do so for my selfish purposes. Or even more, because he wants to intimidate you because you're striving to follow Jesus. And what Jesus says is, to that person, a real person, you're not just to refrain from responding in kind. Jesus commands you in the face of that person's hatred to, to work, to do to do things positively for his good, like to labor for his good, expend effort for his good and well-being. Well, then you get to the third one, and Jesus says, bless those who curse you. Boy, that's a tough one. Jesus moves from deeds now to words. So to the person who's like verbally assaulting you, or belittling you, disparaging you, misconstruing you. Maybe in this sense, like invoking the curses of their gods over you. You could imagine that in a pagan culture. So you're not just to keep from reciprocating. You're not just to say silent. You're to bless her. Uh, the word bless comes from a word meaning good word. Like you, you just speak good words over her. You're, you're to invoke God's favor over her. Um, this could be that you look for an opportunity to compliment her or him, or you recognize maybe that there's some validity to a part of their argument. Well, the fourth, pray for those who abuse you. And this goes even deeper, because now we're interceding. We're in a quiet place before God, and we're pouring out our soul and our heart to God, and we're praying for the well-being Especially the salvation of this person who just abuses and mistreats and threatens and stomps on you. I mean, what what striking commands. Then then after these four commands in verses 29 and 30, Luke moves on and records Jesus giving four illustrations. So Jesus is a great preacher. He's like illustrating this. So he puts these four commands into practice. And in this section, he shifts from a plural you to do everybody to now a singular you because he's really wanting to drive it home personally and poignantly. So first, the first illustration is the one who strikes you on the cheek off the other also. I mean, if you can keep it theoretical, you can obey it, but once you're in that situation, somebody's just backhanded you. You know that's the idea. It's not that you got punched, because the, the the point isn't the physical pain. It's that in that culture, if you want to disgrace somebody or shame somebody publicly or insult them, you would you would you'd slap them, slap them publicly. It was shameful, intolerable, unconscionable. I mean, it hurt. And so Jesus may be picturing this public expulsion from the synagogue. So instead of retaliating, you know, stewing over it and plotting your revenge, Jesus says, look at that person. You just turn that other cheek. You leave yourself open to a possible further insult. I mean, you show yourself you're willing to take more. Well, second, from the one who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. Well, that's another tough one. God rips the cloak away from me and I'm going to give you my tunic too. It's like he robs your outer garment. He seizes it either just because he's robbing you or because it's a way of persecuting you. So you don't get embittered on the one hand and you don't cave into fear. You now that's the other thing you could do. You could say, well, following Jesus is tough. I'm I'm withdrawing. You don't do that either. In fact, you give him your undergarment. This is it like a short t shirt? Like, give him everything. Um, you're treating him like a brother in need, not a persecutor. You know, it's a flip. A, a person that's trying to damage community, you're promoting community. So third, give to everyone who begs from you. So if you encounter someone in dire need and he asks you for help, you give generously to him. And the sense is all these verbs and these illustrations are present tense. It means it's your practice and habit. It's not once in a blue moon. It's something that you regularly do. In fact, you could even sense that somebody's preparing for it. Like I may get asked, so I'm going to prepare in advance. Well, fourth, from the one who takes away your goods, you don't demand them back. And so you imagine somebody steals from you just because they're stealing, or they are trying like, to grab your stuff to like, squash your Christian faith. And the sense is that other people see it, but they don't meddle because, well, you're one of those strange Christians and they're not gonna get involved. So it's a hostile culture like that. So how do you respond? Well, you don't go after him. You don't go fight him. You don't go try to get it back. Well, Jesus moves on from these illustrations now, and he moves to another generalized rule. And actually, this is the most famous part of the sermon. It's called, we call it the golden rule. And Jesus says, And as you wish that others would do to you, do so to them. And the command has roots in the Old Testament comes from Leviticus 19.18. Love your neighbor as yourself. That informs the command. Jewish and pagan literature espoused the commandment in positive forms and negative forms. So sometimes you read it, don't do to others what you don't want them to do to you. That's a good one too. However, Jesus's is unique here. It's unique in two senses. One is that he gives the positive, most emphatic, forceful form of it. As you wish that others would do to you, so do to them. But even more than that, pagan and Jewish literature grounded their form of the golden rule in this reciprocity motive, like a reciprocal society. So they would say, you know, uh, so in a sense, Jesus is saying this, if you remove it from a reciprocity motive, Jesus is saying, let's see, Okay, let me back up a second. If we view it in a reciprocity idea, we would be saying this, I treat you a certain way so that you'll treat me a certain way, or I act towards you in a certain way in order to get you to act a certain way towards me. That's reciprocity. But the golden rule goes much further than this. I mean, That's not bad, but the golden rule goes much further. It says, treat Another person with the love and respect and sensitivity with which you'd want to be treated if you were them. It removes self from the equation, and you're just saying the way that I would prefer someone to treat me and love me and respect me, I'm gonna do that to that person, regardless of how they're treating me, or regardless of what the consequences are gonna be in the future. There's no reciprocity. All right, so that's some powerful stuff in Luke's Luke's version, uh, love's action. Let's look at love's antithesis, and antithesis means contrast. So again, Jesus is a good preacher, and from verse 32 to 35, we see love's antithesis. He now gives three more illustrations of what his upside-down kingdom uh, love is like, and these flow from the golden rule. So These illustrations, like the golden rule, counter the reciprocity ethic or the self-serving ethic that's most natural for us. I mean, to be honest, that's how we most readily, instinctively love, and it controls the degree and scope of our loving, this reciprocity, or how you're gonna treat me. So, you know, if we think of the way we love, we'd say, well, oftentimes love with an agenda. I I love to get back or I love because I'm wanting to get back, or I love to the measure with which I think you're going to try to love me. I mean, that's a that's a toxic thing. Like in a marriage, for example, if I'm just going to love you to the degree I think you're going to love me, then, I mean, it, it gets really bad. And Jesus is countering that. So just think of how you love those closest to you. And think through how that self-serving motive enters in and what it does to us. And that's just the ones closest to us. So Jesus sets his manner of loving an antithesis to how the world loves. He's contrasting, and it's real disturbing what he says because he's contrasting like faithful folks with sinners. And the sinners were a category of people. They were pagan Gentiles, like the worst. You know, pagan Gentiles who who have overrun your country that worship other gods or they were the really bad people within your own group. So they're like outcast Jews. They're the tax collectors and prostitutes. Like you, you steer clear of them. You don't mix, mix with them. You look down on them. So these are the sinners out there. Those are the bad people. And yet Jesus is comparing like the respectable people with the bad people. So Jesus' first example is, if you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you for even sinners love those who love them? It's like this, don't think you've done something if you just narrowed your circle and love those who love you. I mean, the worst folks out there do that. Those people you look down on do that. I mean, in mafia movies, they always have tight-knit families, Jesus says. So the second is, uh, and if you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? Even sinners do that. So the idea is, you know, uh, don't do good to people who you know are going to do good to you. Don't just serve and help those who you know are going to do the same for you. I mean, don't, don't pat yourself on the back and think that that is honoring the kind of love I'm encouraging in you. I mean, there's honor among thieves, like thieves don't steal from each other, like you're not doing that great. It's fine, but it's not what I'm talking about. Third, and if you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners to get back the same amount. So remember, these are subsistence farmers, they fishermen, they're tradesmen. Sometimes they couldn't get to the end of the month, and so they'd make safe loans to one another when they were tight. So the whole process of how they lived is, I'll loan to you today because next month you may be loaning to me. And that's fine, that's good, that's kindly. But Jesus is saying, I'm not really just talking about that, I'm talking about an aggressive kind of love to where you're loaning generously to folks you know aren't gonna pay you back. And these are subsistence farmers. They don't have excess funds. So now Jesus turns it to the positive after those contrasting illustrations and he sums things up and he says, instead of this system of reciprocity that you, are, that you are immersed in, that like frames your view of life, love your enemies and do good and lend without expecting return. And when you live like this, you break out of the world's self-serving system and you do something distinctive. And these commands go back up to verse 27. So we look at this, and it's really, I mean, it's really overwhelming to study this sermon. What do we make of it? Um, I mean, it means we're wide open. There's no limits. There's no boundaries. This sermon has no boundaries. Um, Like a malicious person could enter in and like tear us to shreds with this sermon. So how do we live like this? And so we approach the sermon and we know that we have to interpret it through the whole lens of scripture. Because we often find ourselves in very complex, hard situations. And so we're not to apply it like across the board or over literally, and what I mean by across the board is these are personal ethics, not governmental ethics. Like if there's abuse going on, we get the authorities involved. Or over literal, we don't pr- apply it in a wooden manner. Like if we keep giving our money away to a swindler, we're forsaking other responsibilities that are very close to home. Or even in this sermon, Jesus has just said, bless those who curse you, Instead, except right before that he declared woes on the indifferent rich. And so apparently strong language coexists with a heart to Bless. Like Jesus' motive when he declared woes was, I want to rescue you from a dangerous situation. I need to speak strongly to do that. Or Jesus has just said, turn the other cheek, and yet he's going to be arrested. And he's going to be standing before Annas, uh, the high priest. And he's responding to Annas, the high priest. The cross is right there looming on the horizon, and a soldier doesn't like the way he responds to the high priest, and he just cuffs him. Don't respond to the high priest that way. And Jesus doesn't just silently turn the cheek. He rebukes him in two verses. And so we see that a sharp rebuke can still convey this spirit of love and non-retaliation. It's the the purpose for which we go about it. And what I've liked when counselors have said, you know, love doesn't permit the beloved to continue down a destructive course. It just wouldn't be loving so there's an element of hyperbole in Jesus' commands. He's grabbing our attention. Like he's, he's, we, we get so stuck in our systems that He's shaking us out of it, and he's saying, you're, "You're never to think, speak and act for hate, revenge or selfishness. You're always to think, speak and act with Jesus' revolutionary, upside-down kingdom love. And this kind of love, Romans 12, 21 says, that kind of love, it appears weak to the world, but it's warfare. You overcome a hostile world with this kind of love, Jesus says. Like, think about in your life when you've seen somebody do something like this, and you said, How did that person just do that? And how it changed you when you witnessed that. This kind of love changes a hostile world. Well, finally, real quickly, love's assurance. Love's assurance, 35, the second part of 35 and 36. So if Jesus says we aren't to gauge our behavior by what we get back, then what is to be our motive? What's our motive? Like how do we do this? It's not that we don't have any self-interest in mind. Like you can't be a human and not have self-interest. And some have argued this way in the sermon. You're supposed to be disinterested, like, you know, shut off affections. But Jesus redirects it. He said, the way you do this and the way you should do this is you've you got to know what your true reward is. Like, what do you really want? You know, do you, are you living for just safety, security, success? Is that it for you or are you going for reward in heaven? Like your reward would be great as you practice. You know, when to stumble and fall, but as you practice this, your reward is gonna be great. He's like, keep your reward in mind. Don't settle for what people can give you. Set your heart on what God gives you. It's Colossians 3, 2. Set your minds on things above. He's saying God's grace is so abundant that in addition to the salvation I'm going to give you all by grace, your piddling, faltering little efforts to imitate me are like super valuable in my sight. I'm going to reward it liberally. And the other motive Jesus gives here is we practice loving this way. He says, you will be sons of the most high. The great God who sits on his throne that governs all things, you're gonna be called his sons, meaning he becomes your father. The sense is not that you earned that. The sense is you're growing to become who you are by faith. Like by faith, God became your father. Father because that's the loving grace of God in the Lord Jesus Christ. And now as you practice loving like he loves, you can have a greater sense that God is your father. Because see, the father, all the time, he shows love to the ungrateful and the evil. Like all the time, he's showing love to ungrateful evil people. And we have to admit, we're oftentimes the ungrateful, evil people he shows love to. When he showers us with blessings, we do what we won't do with them. And don't honor him and aren't enthralled to him for it. He goes, I'm always doing that. And so when you do that, you look like me. You look like one of my sons, one of my daughters when you do that. You develop a keen kinship with me, he says. That therefore we can say, be merciful even as your father is merciful. Like... He's always showing mercy, and we start seeing in our lives a greater compassion and sympathy and practical care for the hurts and hardships of this fallen world. Those beautiful motives, where's your reward, and who's your father? Let's be like our father. And behind all this is that deepest motive, because who's speaking it? All of it depends upon Jesus. We wouldn't have a prayer to even get close if it's not for the one who's the king of the upside-down kingdom. And the king of the upside-down kingdom just left it all to come down into our mess. And Jesus, the one preaching, is the one who loved his enemies to the point of dying in their place, who did good to those who hate him, who blessed those who curse him, who gave everything away at the cross when the Father abandoned him, and he did all of that because that's the gospel and that's the only way the Father could save you from your sin. And so Jesus is actually speaking gospel here. I'm gonna do this for you because you're a persecutor and you're hostile to God and yet I've come after you because this is the love of God that flows downhill to the most hateful, hostile people out there And I show you my love to such a degree that I take all your sin upon myself at the cross and I undo it. And then rising from the dead, I bring you to the Father. I've given you my outer cloak, my inner cloak. I mean, everything to give you my salvation and open up the heavenly kingdom for you. That's gospel. And it's that gospel that motivates us to show something of that love to those closest to us and those around us. And therefore, it gives us joy just to imitate Jesus a little bit. Some of you take heart from that, this gospel message and this beautiful charge Jesus gives us to be members of the upside down in the kingdom, in this world, that God might renew all things. Amen. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for your love warfare in order to pummel the evil one, crush his power. Absorb all our guilt, rescue us from hell, death, and sin, and rise victorious from among the dead to gather us around yourself as your people and make us a new kingdom with a hope and a future. We give you thanks. Father, press these teachings in our heart not to discourage us, but to give us hope that as we bumble along as your kingdom members, Lord Jesus, that we would practice imitating such a gracious, gracious God. In whose name we pray. Amen. Let's stand.